For those lucky enough not to have first-hand experience with the prison system, there is one cultural representation of what a prison library is like that probably dominates your imagination. He made deals with book clubs, charity groups. He bought remainder books by the pound. Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson. Fiction, adventure. What's next? I got here uh, auto repair and... Soap carving. Trade skills and hobbies. Goes under educational. Stack behind you. That's a scene from The Shawshank Redemption starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman and based on Stephen King's short story, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. In it, Andy Dufresne is a wrongfully accused former banker serving life in prison. One of the schemes he cooks up to keep himself sane while in jail is to radically expand the prison library. And he succeeds. The Shawshank Prison Library becomes a place where you can listen to music, read some novels, educate yourself, and perform productive work. And I think for a generation of movie watchers, it impressed upon us the idea that books are something that should be in prisons, that they could, as the title of the movie suggests, be a part not just of rehabilitation, but redemption. And that for many of us, the reverence we extend to books and reading doesn't stop at the guard towers and razor wire. But the reality of how books do and do not make it into prisons is a very different story, and one that over the last year or so has garnered national attention. Hello, and welcome to Annotated. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. And I'm Jeff O'Neill. In this episode, we follow the story of a recent controversy in the Washington prison system about books in prisons. And then we talk with someone who knows the power of what books can do, and why sometimes that power is seen as a threat that needs to be quashed. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by WhatBook, the first app for social media. You've heard of social media, but WhatBook is the first app for social media. WhatBook offers users a new platform to share and discover book recommendations from people, just like we do in real life. Choose to follow friends, family, and colleagues for reliable recommendations, while discovering new users with similar reading interests for a more varied yet human recommendation experience. WhatBook has also introduced podcasts onto the platform, so now users can find their next favorite podcast series alongside their next read. Now available for free in the App Store. So, what book next? Thanks to WhatBook for sponsoring this episode of Annotated. My name is Michelle Dillon. I'm a volunteer and board member with Books to Prisoners Seattle, which is one of about 60 different organizations across the country which send free used books directly into the hands of prisoners. Books to Prisoners Seattle sends between 10,000 and 12,000 book packages to prisoners every year, and the process is extremely labor-intensive. We get donations of books from community members, and we'll put them onto our on-site library, where the books will wait for a letter from a prisoner who's seeking it. We encourage prisoners to write one letter every nine months to request books, This is mostly due to our own limited capacity for response. We send out packages of books to exactly as many people, basically, as we have funding for. While some prisons have educational programs and perhaps even small libraries, access to books in prison is restricted at best and non-existent at worst. And if you want a book on a particular topic, you'll have an even harder time. Sometimes we'll get letters that say, hey, I'm trying to study for my GED. Do you have any study materials or possibly a dictionary that can help me as I try to build up my vocabulary for this test? Or they could write in and say, 
hey, I am super bored. I need something to take my mind off of the fact that I'm in this cold gray cell for 24 hours a day. Do you have the next Game of Thrones book or do you have a really juicy mystery that I could read? And Michelle didn't pick that dictionary example randomly. About 25% of request letters include a request for a dictionary. People use it to look up terms as they are, you know, writing letters to their family, as they're reading other novels, again, as they're studying for these educational uh, components or next steps in their life, like the GED, as they're preparing legal briefs, anything and everything. This brings us to probably the second most famous scene of books in jail, Malcolm X. Did you ever look up the word black in a dictionary? For what? Did you ever study anything that wasn't part of some con? What the hell for, man? Come with me. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy, as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? And even in this scene, in which Malcolm Little begins his educational journey to becoming Malcolm X, shows a prison in which a couple of inmates can go over to the prison library and just pick up a dictionary off the shelf. But for most people in jail, it just isn't that easy. And I always use that to talk to people about the state of access to information in prisons. These things that we take for granted because we have smartphones, because we have laptops, because we have bookstores and public libraries and our own personal bookshelves. It's a lack of access to information that most of us just cannot conceive of. So basically, Books to Prisoners tries to fill that gap as best it can. And really, it is a pretty simple but powerful mission. We do our best to find a good book that fits the request that the person is looking for, and then package it up and mail it out to the mailroom. But this is where things get complicated. So far, someone sends Books to Prisoners a written request, Books to Prisoners then does their best to send a book that matches and sends it to the facility where the person requesting the book is. But it has a final hurdle to clear. The person who's working in the mailroom will open it up, look through the contents to make sure that there's nothing inside, uh, and then they will either make a decision to send it on to the person or not. And that decision can either be based on whether they like us as a group or whether they like or dislike the contents of the specific book, which is a bigger problem in some states than others. And these rules can vary wildly from state to state and are, shall we say, sometimes interpreted pretty broadly. A lot of the times, prisons will construct these lists of books, these so-called banned books lists, that have attention paid to what they broadly construe as safety and security. And safety and security can cover uh, incitement of violence, potential accessories to escape attempts. One of the bans that we see widespread over different states is that you cannot have maps. And usually what that looks like is that you cannot have maps that are of the local area. Okay, I guess you can kind of see the logic here. If you're serving a long sentence in jail in the middle of nowhere and request a map for the immediate area, that might seem strange. But even if you concede the point, the prohibition on maps can produce absurd decisions. We've gotten uh, instances where Game of Thrones have been rejected because they have the map of Westeros, never mind that it is a fictional map. We've had prisons that have rejected maps of the moon. It doesn't seem to have a basis in rationality. 
books to prisoners wants to comply with the rules prisons put into place. It doesn't serve their mission to have their books confiscated and have the people who requested them left in the lurch. And while it can be frustrating, mostly the books make it through. We've tracked our own book rejections before, and we've noticed that about 5% of the books that we send are rejected. We've developed these fairly robust training policies to try to guide volunteers about what to send and what not to send. We write on the outside of the envelope any known restrictions, for example. No hardback books, three books maximum, no blank journals, which is a restriction that Texas has, for example. We've tracked our own book rejections before, and we've noticed that about 5% of the books that we send are rejected. So we do our best. I know it's really just frustrating. Frustrating because in those cases where a book is rejected, it's not clear why it was rejected or what could be done to avoid it happening again. Even with the procedures that we've developed, there's still this unknown quantity where because there's a lack of oversight and a lack of standardization, prison mailrooms are still able to just reject our packages and oftentimes not even offer a very comprehensive explanation of what happened. So this is how things normally go, until a few weeks ago, when books to prisoners started to think something was changing in a big way. And their antenna were already up because there seemed to be efforts all over the country to restrict prisoner access to books. New York had attempted a ban on free-used books. Pennsylvania had attempted a ban on free-used books. The Bureau of Prisons had attempted a ban on free-used books. And Maryland had also very quietly attempted this ban. And all of those had been pushed back on successfully. So they were on the lookout for a new policy in Washington. And it's a good thing they were. When we started to notice that an increasing number of packages were being returned by Washington, we started to poke around on the DOC website to see if maybe they had gone the same route of New York, Pennsylvania, Bureau of Prisons, Maryland, in their attempted book ban. And lo and behold, we found this policy that they had covertly rolled out. It was dated March 12th. And by the time we found it, it had already been in place, according to when it was expected to roll out, for nearly a week. The new policy didn't ban books in prisons. What it did was severely restrict where those books could come from. Where before, approved organizations like Books to Prisoners could send books, now they couldn't. And individuals already weren't allowed to send books. This new policy limited books to, one, those accepted by the Washington State Library for incarcerated individuals, which had already been approved by the prisons division. Two, used books from the Monroe City Library directed specifically to the correctional facilities in Sonomish County. And three, to those used books purchased by prisoners enrolled in pre-approved correspondence educational courses. Phew. But those had to be bought from the bookstore affiliated with the course. In short, books pre-approved by the prison... Books from one city library to one county, and course materials. That's it. And the Washington State Department wanted to keep it quiet. And that backfired. Book Riot's piece about the ban by Kelly Jensen made the front page of Reddit, that magical front page we talked about a couple of episodes ago, and national attention followed. Local media got involved too and started asking questions in ways that only local media really knows how to do. And I was very curious about, well, you know, what does the governor think about this? What about the lawmakers who work on prison issues? Um, Washington State at least often talks about, you know, reducing incarceration, reducing recidivism, helping 
people come back into the community who have been locked up. And this seemed to kind of run counter to a lot of statements that people have made in the past. This is Joseph O'Sullivan, who covers state government for the Seattle Times. And he started asking Washington lawmakers just what they thought about this policy. We were able to get the governor raising questions about it, and he had called the OC with, with concerns, and the lawmakers seemed to have not been informed about it, some of the key ones that work on prison issues, and so that piqued our interest. The other question the Seattle Times asked was this, what prompted this policy? What was it a response to? Department of Corrections put out a news release uh, in response to our questions, and they said that Look, we we've been we've been seeing a rise in contraband. That's why we're worried about this. They cited over the recent five calendar years, there's been an in- increase in contraband involving books, including 17 instances in 2018. 17 instances of contraband involving books. At least that's what the DOC claimed. But what does involving mean? And were these instances from organizations like Book to Prisoners or what? I contacted DOC and I said you know, we'd like to get every one of those 17 instances, you know, an account of uh, what happened, what sort of contraband was discovered, uh, whether that contraband was discovered in the mailroom. In other words, was it coming in through the used books or was it already, you know, or was it found already in the prison? Because at this point, it's not clear. Are these 17 instances actually about stuff being smuggled inside books? Or were books being used to hide contraband that came in some other way? It just wasn't clear. The DOC responded to the requests for information, but the response only listed five cases of contraband involving books. What happened to the other 12? I thought to myself, wait a second, they said 17 examples. Why is this five? And so I'm emailing and talking back and forth with the spokesman for the Department of Corrections, and he says, well, yeah, a dozen of the examples turned out didn't actually involve books. You know, somebody did a keyword search uh, with, you know, books and contraband, and 17 examples showed up, but the 12 of these examples were just things that had nothing to do with books. It just mentioned books and contraband in there. One example of that was a guy was confronted by an officer booker. Another guy was booked because of contraband, booked, quote-unquote. And so they didn't seem to have gone pretty closely through their data. Okay, so 12 of the cases are basically garbage. That leaves five. And while five out of thousands of packages of books isn't a high percentage, given that these donations can only come through approved organizations, it's possible there's still some sort of problem here, even if an outright ban seems overboard. Well, about those five cases. Based on the information that DOC gave us, there's no evidence that that contraband actually entered the prison through the books. In each of these other cases involving books and contraband, there is no evidence that the contraband came into the prisons through the book donation process. And so there isn't a shred of evidence to support the ban. Things turned around pretty quick now. In about a week, the ban had been reversed, and the DOC and Books to Prisoners were engaged in negotiations to improve the process for getting books to inmates. A combination of public pressure, politics, and just plain old common sense turned the tide. So this story seems to be in the process of having a happy ending. But it's still not clear why this policy was rolled out and why it was rolled out in the way that it was. It certainly doesn't seem politically motivated. The person in charge of the Washington Department of Corrections was appointed by the current governor. The governor, by the remarks that he's made, didn't know about it much far in advance. And as soon as he did know, he called over to DOC. And even lawmakers who work closely with the state's prison systems didn't know anything. I spoke to the two Democratic lawmakers, one state senator and one state House representative, who oversee the committees that deal with prison issues. Nobody had talked about it with them. They didn't have any information about it. They were very surprised. 
Okay, so the instrumental reason is knocked out. Book donations were just not causing any problems. And the political motive is knocked out. Both the public and the governing party of Washington weren't calling for this. And that leaves folks connecting the dots from what has happened in other states. We know from Pennsylvania is that they had renegotiated a contract with their tablet provider a few months before they decided to put this ban on free used books. And in Pennsylvania, the renegotiated contract had created an incentive for the Department of Corrections, a financial incentive, to uh, ban the books and to push all of the prisoners onto the tablets, which had very expensive e-books, up to $24.99 per book. Could it be that this was all preamble to some third party coming in to supply prisoners with books for a price, and that books to prisoners wasn't a threat, but merely competition? I ran this by Joseph to see if he'd heard anything around the state house about this. And while he hasn't heard anything specifically, funding is always a question when it comes to the DOC. I can't speak to that one. Uh, of course, all our, our prisons are publicly run in Washington State, uh, but they also face a lot of financial pressure, too. So their costs are always a thing whenever anything's being discussed. And this would be a real shame, not just because books are inherent good, but because here's the thing. Books help keep people from going back to jail. Recidivism, as it's called, is a huge problem, but there's evidence that books can make a significant difference. One program that encourages prisoners to read, called Changing Lives Through Literature, has been in operation since 1991, and their results have been encouraging. People who participated in Changing Lives Through Literature were three times as likely to stay out of jail a year later after release as compared to a control group. Look, books and reading aren't silver bullets. They can't stand in for the enormous social problems that lead to having so many people go to jail and then too often go back to jail. But access to education and information can make a difference if given the chance. And in the course of working on this episode, I spoke to someone who exemplifies both the possibilities of reading and the array of obstacles even the most dedicated person has to overcome in turning their lives around. So, in an annotated first, part two of Books Behind Bars will come out in two weeks in the form of an extended interview with Chris Wilson, whose story is one you are going to want to hear. As a teaser, here's Chris talking about the book that meant the most to him in jail, but we're not going to tell you what it is until next time. It might be strange for some people why it's the most important book, because I read, I read like, you know, all of the books that, you know, like, I read hundreds of books, but like that book was important to me in a sense because it was a tough time in my life. It taught me about resiliency and um, discipline. And I was religious about my studying. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. Thanks to Michelle Dillon and Joseph O'Sullivan. If you are interested in finding out more about the Books to Prisoners organization, go to bookstoprisoners.net. And if you want a little more annotated, at least in picture form, follow us on Instagram at annotatedfm. And if you want to get a jump on part two, I highly recommend picking up Chris Wilson's memoir called The Master Plan. Until next time, which will be in two weeks, read something great. <laughs>